I have no idea what we're talking about either. So. Me neither. Like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. We are good at this job. We have been. Sometimes we're good at it. We have good days and bad days. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. This is the Design Games Podcast. Nathan, what do you want to talk about on the show this time? This seems like an opportune time for us to step back and see how these conversations that we've been having is informing our own design process and kind of reflect on the show so far. Hi, everybody. We changed our podcast providers this week, so the RSS feed has changed. You may or may not notice this if you, if you have been subscribing to the show through iTunes or Google Play. It's already updated. You've got your new episode, so hopefully everything will continue as it has always been. However, if you do change your podcast provider or are looking for the show, you can still go to designgamespodcast.com to find us, and you can still find the old archives and side posts and everything at Tumblr at designgamespodcast.tumblr.com. The RSS feed now is easy to find at the top of our website at designgamespodcast.com if you need it for any reason at all. So Nathan, we're hitting episode 44 today. We're recording it literally as we speak. And so with episode 44, as opposed to our 45th anniversary or our 50th or whatever, I think it would be interesting to go back and kind of check in both on the podcast and check in with us as designers to look at and talk about some some designs of our own and designs that are influencing our own and, and just kind of check in with us in the design space and, and think, mm-hmm. you know, like, so what are we what are we thinking about? What are we doing? Especially because I just did. I went through all the, the episodes this last week, migrating them to the new website. And so I'm, I'm feeling very nostalgic. I'm feeling very mm-hmm. kind of retrospective yeah. about having seen all these episodes and how much has my opinion changed, for example, on things that we've talked about. Not necessarily like change in the sense of I disagree yeah, with the old episodes. I'd, I'd be surprised if we've experienced big changes in terms of like listening to an earlier episode and being like, oh, that's not what I think. Right. But more like as we've been actively engaging with these topics in like a mindful developmental manner, our relationship with them has changed, right? Like that's yeah. part of the design process itself. As you analyze your tools, the tools change. And how you use them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a little bit of expansion and constriction that changes. And it's not necessarily a matter of, of a judgment or a value call. It's just a change. It's not an yeah. improvement or a, or a diminishment necessarily. Mm-hmm. Is there something in the last, say, even year or something that you've become aware of recently, design-wise, that you do think of as something that you're doing now that you weren't doing or that you were doing differently or that your opinion has changed on either from this project, a specific project or just design philosophy? Mm -hmm. What's been added? So I actually got a lot out of our discussion about pulling things together Mm -hmm. and assembling all the currents and ideas and thoughts that you have into the thing for whatever the next phase is for a play storm or a play test or whatever that is. I've kind of transitioned from doing that because you have to in some way, because it is kind of required by the process to figure that out, to blocking it in as part of my plan, mm. right? Like, I'm going to a convention next week, so I want to play test this thing. Like, for example, recently I went to Origins and one of my goals was to play test Input the Perverse, uh, which is one of my long running games. I've mentioned it in previous episodes. And some things since the last time I touched it, like some things have changed. I've edited the text a little bit. I've changed some of the rules. So I think where previously I kind of would have just cast my gaze upon what I already had, printed stuff out, maybe made some notes to myself about thoughts for the playtest or whatever. I gave myself a day to sit down, go through the materials that I have so far and figure out like, oh, I updated this, but I never updated this. Right. I did this in the text and it never made it to the reference sheet. This new rule is not reflected on the character sheet. 
that kind of thing. So in going through that process of just kind of, it wasn't even a lot of work, right? Like it wasn't like hours and hours at the computer. It was more like giving myself some time to sit, look at all the materials, see what was missing, and then kind of develop this idea that I have for doing single session scenarios. That's mm. kind of not fully pre-gen, but it's not fully do it at the table. It's kind of in this middle space. So like, how do I make that process work with the current playtest materials and all that business? And then the result was at Origins, I, I did manage to sit down and have a single playtest session of that material, of the scenario that I prepped, incorporating all the new stuff that I wanted to make sure we, we touched on. And I'm not sure if I would have done that if I hadn't given myself the time and space to pull it together into a form where I just had a folder with all the material and everything was together and coherent with itself. Right. Like, sure, there's still errors and some issues and things that need to change as a result of the playtest. Sure. But it wasn't a situation of me being like, oh, and go ahead and make sure you note this because it's not on your sheet yet. And where did I put that that other printout? Is it on my computer? Did I actually do it? Like mm. a little more haphazard, which is many of my playtests in the past have been more in that way. That's interesting. Yeah. I do that a lot now. The bringing it together, that's kind of one of my, the close of a diamond for me. Yes. Is that I bring it in and I make sure that the stuff agrees, even if it's not like, even if I know that it's probably not correct, like mm -hmm. that the playtest is probably going to stress test this thing into changing. Like this may not be done. Right. But here is a state in which it can be tested. Yeah. And that the three parts that I might, I, I'm picking a number at random, but the character sheet, the the handout and the note the GM notes all agree with each other so that it's just one less thing for my brain to track. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I find that very helpful in part because it's not just for the cognitive load, which is a definite thing. It's just one less thing for me to have to sweat about while it's going on. But because that's essentially three opportunities or however many X number of opportunities to, if you will, even just kind of fiddle with the thing on the table to push it around and go, mm -hmm. oh, you know what? If I just turn it over and I use the, the head side of the coin <laughs> or whatever yeah. for ideas to emerge, which is interesting to me because bringing that level of stuff together and for actual play for a play test, I'm very, very good at bringing stuff together for final edit mm. is where the pressure gets me because I'm like, I can't change it after this. One of them is I'm getting oh, it together sure. so that I can yeah. learn. And the other one is we're getting it together so that it will be encased in amber forever mm. with all of its mistakes. And that scares yeah. the hell out of me. And it didn't used to scare me as much as it does. Yeah. I think it depends on the project for me. Like, for example, I've just wrapped up the next iteration full release version of Masks of the Mummy Kings, which I've been working on for a while. And congratulations on that, by the Thank way. Thank you. And so the game has existed and it has been unchanged for like a year, but I've been putting together this standalone like 32-page little soft cover. Just more material so that I can give it to someone who's not me or someone who's not from my play tradition and mm -hmm. they can get it, right? So more verbiage, more examples, that kind of thing. That I've been envisioning all along as being a like fully print-on-demand slash digital product. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel that same pressure of like it has to be final because the nature of that thing is that I can change it later if something comes up, right? right. I think there is a mental barrier. And like I have other things that are print-on-demand that I don't do that where I'm like, oh, there's an error. Oh, well, that's just how it is because I've kind of mentally gated it, right? I've said like, I'm done with that project. Yeah, Here it is, warts and all. And this project I'm actually a little bit more like, I'm going to keep an eye on it. And if stuff comes up, you know, I'll just upload the new file and everything from then on will be version 1.0. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. And nothing is going to break. It's not going to fundamentally change the game. It's just going to be, it's going to be like, uh, you know, like app updates, basically. So giving myself different uh, rubrics for success for projects is helpful for that for me. But like, I also totally get the post-release drop. Anytime I finish anything and like send it out, like, here's the thing, I'm immediately just assailed by terror, right? right? Like, right. it has to be the last thing I do that day. 
because if I do it early in the day, I can't do anything else. Like I just have to like walk away from the computer and be done and give myself a, an overnight or whatever. Right. And that's just me. Uh, if it's useful, I find I do I do housework really well after a release. So if I mm-hmm. release something at like noon or something during the day, yeah, I get away from the desk and I just clean the apartment or I, you know, I walk the dog and I yeah. reshelve books and all that stuff because that's automated in a way to mm-hmm. me, right? I find that very helpful. Yeah. And also it's not interacting with other people right. and it's not sitting there waiting to be validated, right? It's right. part of it. Yeah, definitely. Like, Validate this thing that I just created. Just sitting and and waiting for that to happen in real time is terrifying. So, you know, I walk away. What about you, Will? What what have you been taking from our conversations? So one of the things for me definitely deals with emergence, actually. I love and value things that are emergent. But one of the things that it took me a long time to embrace as being good in things that I'm working on right now, like uh, the two big things I'm working on right now, obviously is dark at the top of it, just essentially my full-time job. It's dominating the day, but I'm also doing this quick uh, little card game for the camp where I teach creative writing at. And so I had to do that, uh, some changes to that in the last couple of weeks. And in both of them, I discovered that one of them, that, that the card game made something clearer and dark that was super valuable, valuable to me, which was that something doesn't have to be emergent to be good and it doesn't have to be emergent to be elegant and it doesn't have mm. to be emergent to be subtext. Right, like su- subtext in fiction, there's a the thing where it's like, yeah, and if you and if you really read or understand the piece, you see that blank is true. I mean, emergence can do that, but that's not emergence is not the only way to do that in game. And, the, and here's an example: is that one of the the rules that people seem to really like and immediately embrace and engage with in dark is what we call thieves can't, which is where as long as your characters can see each other, you can show each other your hand, so you can kind of plan. And the players can talk; they don't have to be. But the characters are just talking in hand signs or mm-hmm. jargon or whatever. But if the characters can't see each other, then the players can't communicate that way. They can talk still. Mm-hmm. but they can't they have to allude to what's in their hands this is a completely unenforceable mechanic you have to enjoy it to, for it to be fun right and everybody seems to like this mechanic mm-hmm. I've never encountered any static on it but I'm, I've always that's not really a system that's not really a game rule that's just kind of that's just a custom and I was wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a yeah. rule yeah. that's a thing it's a structural element that drives the interaction of the players in a way that they wouldn't otherwise interact right right but because it doesn't engage with the mechanical system as mm-hmm. it might historically be considered. it doesn't. I mean, it barely engages with the cards. It doesn't really engage with them at all, per se. And mm-hmm. it doesn't engage with the dice or what have you. In a way, I was discounting that as a matter of that I was like, well, at some point, like I can still put that in the book, but it, I can't really draw attention to it. I, I can't make it load-bearing mm-hmm. because it's not, not a real thing. But the fact is that it's a real component to how people get into and understand how the cards work. Right. So it creates a system where just saying it, that it doesn't have to be emergent for it to be elegant or for mm-hmm. it to be effective. And I know that that's true, but I have a feeling like I have a tendency to overvalue emergence, that things that emerge right. like, unexpectedly from the collision of mechanics are right. better. Like in, in some alternate reality game of Dark, the fact of all these other mechanics means that at the table, people only share their hands when they can see each other fictionally, as opposed to being a top-down rule. Right. Right. In, in that alternate Dark, is that more valuable that that happens? Right. I mean, there's no way to tell, but like you say, there's no intrinsic value to saying, oh, this is an effective, enjoyable part of play. Let me tell you about how to do it up front. That doesn't have greater or less value than find out in play whether you're going to do this or not. Right. And it's still not, it's not like it's not completely without emergence in that at a table, how how the characters position themselves so that they can always use Thieves Can't. Right. Or how the players make choices so that they can communicate their cards to somebody, mm-hmm. right? Things will emerge. Well, and that's a, it's a but, structural element that leads to both fictional change and player level yeah. change, right? Yeah. Which is great. That, like, that's where you're going to get emergent right, properties when, yeah. when all those things are rubbing up against each other. 
Well, because it also doesn't have, it's not like there's a bonus in the sense of, hey, if I can see your hand, I get a bonus to doing this action. It just makes things easier, mm-hmm. which on the one level is non-mechanical and on the other level is richly supported. Because it's a card game, it's always a limited information game in a different way than dice are because nobody has any information on those dice until the number comes up. Right. But in a card game, that limited information relationship is different. And mm-hmm. so anything that helps the players communicate and the fact that it has a fictional qualifier has been really effective in drawing people into the world, into the physical space, mm-hmm. which I like. But it's an example of a rule that I had I used because I thought it was cute yeah. and is doing more work than I anticipated it was doing. So it essentially is emergent, but it's not in the sense of but what it, doesn't, you're doing, it doesn't reveal the theme of the game in a particularly profound right. way. Uh, but what you're doing is something that I think we talked about in the emergence episode, which mm-hmm. is once you see those things arise, you can capture them and nurture them into um, an intentional part of the game. Like, oh, this is cute. We'll just see if people do it or not. And there's no real huge game effect if they do it or not. But then once they do it and it does have a huge game effect, it's like, oh, this is what you do. It's a rule right. now. Right. Like, let me shunt that over into like, no, do this. <laughs> if you don't do it, you might be losing out on something. Yeah. Good things are more likely to happen when. Right. That was one thing uh, when I was working on the, the Mummy Kings text recently was trying to cut down the number of qualifiers. Like sometimes, often... Mm-hmm. You'll want to, you'll often find like those kinds of things because that's how I would talk to someone because I don't want to come over as overbearing, right? Like in in one-on-one conversation, like, let me tell you how this game has to be run to work, right? right? right. But uh, I realized in the text that reading it that way, it ends up sounding like either I'm uncertain about what I'm telling you or everything is optional. Right. And neither of those are true. So I was trying to find ways to to do things that were a little more declarative and a little more kind of solid. This situation will arise. Mm. Like that kind of thing. Like it's optional in the sense that it's not always going to happen. But if it happens, here's how to deal with it, uh, which is easy to confuse with. Maybe this will happen. Who knows? Right. You can safely skip this section because you'll. who knows if this is ever going to come up. Right. Right. There's that if then and then there's the if maybe and the maybe if and all yeah. that. And then there's when then. I'm a fan of when then because mm-hmm. it, it, it suggests not that something is going to happen every time, but eventually, and especially, for example, like I'm doing that a lot in the text for Dark where uh, – and that's a big part of my rewrites on that is going back and making things less sometimes and less – if often, both when referring to the fictional world and referring to the gameplay, the early drafts of it were very wishy-washy because mm-hmm. I was concerned that, that I was t- talking to people who think, didn't already agree with me. Right. Well, and I think there's a thing that happens once you start valuing and trying to take into account different play styles and different play cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Where you kind of want to make the room in your text to say, this is inclusive of multiple ways to play, but in some ways to play, this is going to happen and it's not going to happen in others. So you kind of say like, sometimes this will come up, right? right? But that's not actually communicating that accommodation, right? That's often it's communicating uh, that you don't know what you're trying to say or that you don't know how often it's going to happen. Or right. I don't like know. That. It's possible this might happen, I right. guess. Yeah. That's why I do the when yeah. now. Especially because Mm -hmm. when the card-based mechanics of Dark, which are a little bit curious, there are certain things that depending on the shuffle will happen. Mm -hmm. But because it's a shuffle, they might never happen. Like you might – if you play Dark, you play five Mm -hmm. sessions of Dark and have a good time and go on with your life, you might never see this occur. And so I don't want to say – you know, sometimes if all the stuff I say – when you have nothing that you are excited about playing in your hand, do this. Yeah. And you might go, oh, that's never happened to me. Good. Mm -hmm. Great. I hope you always have exciting things to play in your hand. But <laughs> when you don't, here's what you can do. Yeah. Nathan, is there anything 
looking, just kind of thinking back, that is almost emergent from the show? Something that we haven't done an episode on, but that is something that we that you think of the show and you think, I hope this is coming across. Because I was asking myself that same question going through the, the migration of the episodes. One of the things I noticed is that we have a lot of, in the episode notes, that say, well, we could talk a lot more about this. And we can, because all these topics... It's not like there's a finite number of games to be designed. Right. And part of that to me was realizing the fact that I hope it's clear that we are kind of sketching out the very general shape of a place in which to design, that there's no one true way going on. Right. Yeah, I think that those kind of notes that we're kind of half to ourselves, right? Like, oh, we could talk more about this. I think a lot of those subjects do get brought back up into later episodes. We just don't flag them out as, oh, and now we're going to talk about ideation more or something like that. This episode includes the following references to four previous episodes. Yeah, we don't do that. In a sense, what we're doing is very unnatural, right? We're taking a process that is, again, the only word I can think of to describe it as holistic, a, a process that in itself is circular and changes over time and treating it in a linear fashion due to the nature of the medium. So... In some ways, we kind of fall prey to that, right? Because once we've done a topic, mm-hmm. it feels like there's a lot more value to moving on to a new topic than there is in readdressing an older topic. But in the design process, those older subjects or those first principles or whatever come back again and again as you get to each of your validation points. Right. Because those are the metric by which you're evaluating your design decisions. I like that. It's a very clear way of saying kind of what I mean What I mean by space is the fact that in a room, in a space, isn't linear. Two spaces can be linear mm-hmm. together where one leads to the next. Right. But a space is you might go back over to the table where you left all of your design principles and you'd be like, okay, now I pick them up and I hold them against the thing I drew today. And I find out that the thing I drew does or does not validate. You know, that you're, yeah. you're constantly kind of going back as you, as necessary to previous elements. And that's, that's a great point about the linearity of the podcast is just a, a podcast anything that yeah. has episodes it's just the nature of the of the medium and, and yeah. the nature of the beast if you will that i think going back to previous episodes not necessarily over and over again but in the sense of like there isn't a wrong way despite the linearness of the episodes and the, and the way we refer to stuff there kind of isn't a wrong order inherently wrong order to listen to them like if you, right. if you decide hey now i think i am going to go on back and look at that dice episode mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. I mean, I think any any trouble to listening to the episodes in a certain order is one that we have imposed by right. referencing specific episodes, like the, the episode where we kind of developed the diamond, the moving through diamond metaphor, which I think we've been hitting a lot because it's now that we have it, it is easy to reference. Also, it's not a spectrum, so I was just happy to have something I could refer to that wasn't another, another spectrum. Finally. I love spectrums, but yeah. I just was happy to have an mm-hmm. additional visual... So, you know, we could do a better job about maybe flagging uh, on the on the new website. Here are a couple episodes that are relatively referenced. It's like ad rank. Here are the <laughs> here are the episodes that are most referenced by other episodes. Maybe if you had to listen to an order like that might be a good order. Right. Thinking about like the design process and whatnot. I had this experience a lot in school and a little less so, but still every so often with my own work, which is where you do a bunch of work and you feel like you're spinning your wheels and then everything falls into place in a very short amount of time. And once it's fallen into place, you can see that all that wheel spinning wasn't necessarily wheel spinning. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. You know, you're like, I wasted four days doing stuff that's not going to help. And then on the fifth day you go, those first three days were were essential. I did stuff those days that while they didn't turn out the way I thought they were going to do, 
they got me to the fifth day. Right. In my experience, it's a, a 75%. If three out of the four days in which your wheels were spinning generated some kind of traction to get to the fifth day, mm-hmm. that's a good ratio. Yeah. Like that's still only one day that in which you kind of did a lot of work that didn't quite pay off. But of course, you can't pick those numbers in advance. But absolutely that, that experience, if you're sitting still, you're probably not doing anything. But if the wheels are spinning, you never know. I feel like I talk about this in a lot. I feel like I talk about it a lot because I feel like I don't get it across very much, which is that all of the work that you're doing is valuable, even if it doesn't turn into the final work. So maybe that's one lesson that, or or one thematic element that I don't think needs an entire episode. But it, it's throughout the whole thing, man, where like, that feeling of I'm not getting anywhere, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm not getting anywhere. The only way to ensure that you don't get anywhere is to stop. Right. Right. Then you have been spinning your wheels. And there are valid reasons to stop, right? Like there are times where you evaluate what you're doing and say, oh, this just isn't worth it for me to finish. With the information and skill I have at my disposal right now. Right. Don't burn it. (laughs) Yeah. But also all that work that you did and then put in a drawer and put aside, that is now groundwork for a different project. Right. Whether it's on the top of your mind or in your subconscious or, or whatever. So yeah. This isn't my metaphor, but I've always liked it. It's the notion where you're like, look, or I made all these spark plugs that fit an engine that doesn't exist yet. And I'm not about to go build a new engine. Mm. And then two years later, you go, oh, I, I didn't mean to, but I built a new engine. <laughs> I, I have spark plugs for this. Yeah. <laughs> Man, wouldn't it be nice if there was some spark? Oh. <laughs> or somebody, you find out a friend of yours built that engine. And yeah. you go, hey, you know, I have spark plugs. It'll probably be a perfect fit for that or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And that, yeah, it happens at a order and it's maddening and it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes it's just the way yeah. that goes. Yeah, so... Evolution is not a goal-directed process they right. taught us in anthropology school. Well, and what they taught us in design school is that design is about embracing ambiguity, which sounds really fancy. But one thing you have to unlearn, I think, uh, especially if you're coming from, I don't know, maybe more technical field or more solution oriented field, is that the fact that there isn't a clear answer does not mean that you shouldn't be asking the question. Mm -hmm. The fact that there's no cut and dried, here's the best way to do this. That's the problem. Like that's where the problem lives is in finding different ways to answer it not in trying to find the best answer. You may have a vision for what your answer is going to be, and you need a vision. But sometimes you're going to find out that your vision was off by 10 degrees or mm-hmm. 100 degrees or whatever, but yeah. was is very different from, from the answer to the question that you're asking. And there are tro- points, for me, this is always a big one. Like the, the example I think was either the car or the iPod, mm-hmm. where if you were to draw an iPod before the iPod existed and then try to create an iPod and hold yourself forever to that drawing that you first made, no, it must look like this, mm-hmm. we would probably never get an iPod. Mm-hmm. Right. And the thing Henry Ford said about the horseless carriage is that if he built what everybody asked for, he would just get a faster horse. Right. And it works both ways. You're asking questions and then you're finding an answer. Maybe it's maybe it's a good answer. Maybe it's not a good answer. But that's what you have to evaluate. That's why it's ambiguous. That's why you need a framework with which to to determine, you know, how close your answer is to what you're trying to get. And sometimes you come up with an answer and it's not to the question you asked. And then sometimes it means, oh, I need to ask a different question. And this can go both well and poorly. Like I think we're all familiar with consumer products that are, the term is their solutions in search of a problem. Mm -hmm. Things that are made basically for the sake of being made and then marketed for the sake of being sold and don't seem to have any relationship to an actual problem anyone has in their lives. A lot of infomercial products, you know, fit that category. But sometimes that's just because they're being miscast. And maybe it's not a good consumer product, but it's a great industrial application for something, right? Uh, so that's all just to say that the the whole enforced linearity of the show hopefully is not underserving this idea that the process is both continuous, complicated, and, and only of value in reference to your goals and y- what you want to get out of your project and your design process. Being aware that that's what you're engaging in is how you attain mastery over it. And I think that's what we're trying to 
get across. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. You can find Will on Patreon at patreon.com slash wordwill. And you can find Nathan on Patreon at patreon.com slash ndpauletta. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...